good is coming. Few have the courage and simplicity to believe it. This is the Yoakum Strength Podcast with me, your host, Austin Yoakum, and producer Marcus Sasson behind the scenes. This quote leads us into our guest today, Dan Casey. Coach Casey is a head football coach at St. David's High School, a track and field coach, and was a part of AFCA's 35 Under 35 Coaches Leadership Group. I found Coach Casey after being tagged in a couple of his posts on Instagram about the importance of speed and technical and tactical abilities of a football athlete. I loved the breakdown of these posts and thought it'd be an awesome opportunity to bring an actual sport coach onto the podcast to talk about how he goes about sports performance training for his team. Today, we talked about the importance of the speed advantage, how to keep practices enjoyable, and why he doesn't just focus on bigger and stronger. I really enjoy getting the sport coach's view of things and how he goes about blending everything. As a sport coach, you're involved with all the technical and tactical abilities, but like Coach mentions in this podcast, you also are responsible for understanding all the sports performance, all the things that your athletes are actually going through. It was cool to see that there's sport coaches out there that are open, sport coaches out there that understand this, and sport coaches out there that really are trying to evolve where the game of football is going and where team sports are going. I hope you guys got a lot out of this podcast, and if you did, it would it would help the podcast tremendously if you give it a rating and uh, reviewed it. Only if it got only if it gave you guys any value. Only if there's some nugget in there that you guys took out, but really helps push this podcast forward for where we're trying to take it. Thank you guys for listening. Well, coach, it's awesome to have you on the podcast. You want to tell the listeners a little bit about yourself? Yeah, appreciate you having me on. I'm, my name is Dan Casey. I'm the head football coach and I also coach, help coach the track team at St. David's School in Raleigh, North Carolina. Um, and I think if, if anyone were to outside of the Raleigh area, it would probably be through social media. It's something I've tried to do uh, the past few years, just connect with coaches and share resources and and all that stuff. And, you know, so obviously football is the main thing for me being a, being a football coach is, is what I spend most of my time thinking about, but um, I don't think you can get away with, uh, with coaching for too long without thinking a lot about human performance. And so I've really down, I guess the rabbit hole, so to speak of human performance stuff. It started off the track football consortium up in Chicago and meeting some of the people um, like Tony Holler and Chris Corfus and some of the other guys up there that um, really got me into thinking about, you know, track and field and its connection with football and um, it really thinking through a lot of the performance stuff. Um, and so I've just really incorporated all that into the way I coach football now. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I've, I've been coaching, let's see, I guess it's, I just finished up year four. I'm only 28 years old. I got a head coaching job when I was 24. I uh, had absolutely no idea what I was doing. Still, still trying to figure a lot of things out, but I got to try out a lot of things. I got to uh, experiment a lot, see what works, not only see what works for, uh, for me personally as a coach, but you know, what do my athletes enjoy? What, what gives them the biggest benefit uh, with the time I get to spend with them? So uh, it's been it's been fun. My my wife always jokes that I've had kind of this petri dish the past few years where I've just gotten to to grow and learn and discover a whole bunch of different things philosophically and schematically. And um, I just feel like I've I've had an opportunity to really dive in deep and and learn a lot about the game. Yeah. So uh, kind of on your path to becoming a a head coach, what was like what was that like for you? Like, did you know right away like, hey, I'm gonna be I want to be a football coach. Like, this is it, or was it kind of like an eye-opening experience when football was done for you or something like that? 
Yeah, I mean, this is this is something I say a lot when I talk with people about it, especially when I talk with athletes, is I think one of the most jarring experiences you can one of the most jarring experiences you'll face as a as a football player, but an athlete in general. But I feel like particularly with football is when the the end of your career comes, it's so stark because, you know, if I, I played basketball in high school and, you know, when my competitive basketball career was over, I could still go to the Y and play some pickup and do better. You know, you, you can you can play rec league softball. You can do different things like that to kind of scratch the itch with other sports, but with football, like I guess you can play flag football, but like it, it really is over. Like in, in the in the way the game exists, the way we play it in America, I guess. And for me, it was like super shocking to my my whole world when that that ended. Because I think with football, you know, when you're on a group of, especially if you play in college, you're on a group of, uh, you're with a group of 110 other guys, and you're all like everything you're doing is whether it's the meals you eat, the sleep you get all the off season stuff, it's with those other guys in mind. And so it's not just, it's not just that you miss out on the game, but you also miss out on the, all that camaraderie. It kind of becomes your tribe, so to speak. And so when it's over, it's, it's just over. And I, I think it's really hard for people to, to figure out kind of what's next. And so for me, I, when I, when my college career ended, I really tried to pursue other opportunities to play. i professionally worked out for some teams up in Canada, never made it, was never talented enough to, to play at the next level, but still tried to find opportunities to play. Even went down to Mexico to play um, a little bit, just because there's nothing like it. I mean, the, the game is, is remarkable. It's, it's so much fun, the camaraderie, everything. It's, it's, it's definitely an addictive, um, addictive game because of, because of all that's involved in it. It's both cerebral and physical and, and all of these different things. And so, for the longest, not for the longest time, but for several years after I was done with college, I was still working out, trying to, um, trying to make it, so to speak, trying to get, uh, get an opportunity to play, whether, it, you know, I considered going over to Europe and playing and decided not to do that because I just gotten married. But, um, you know, I really still wanted to play the game. And I took a year away from football completely when I was in school after I'd finished up my fifth year at Davidson college where I played, uh, played collegially and I just missed the game so much that year and realized that you know for my own sanity and personal health like getting involved with it in some way was going to be good for me so I started reaching out to high schools like hey do you want me to volunteer I'll come swing by and and you know help out with the dbs or the receivers or whatever um and then school in Raleigh um called me and the first year I was literally just helping out I mean just you know helping out with the dbs and doing a little bit here and there. And then year two, uh, they asked me to be the head coach. So it was just like, bang. <laughs> so I went from kind of just showing up to practice and goofing around with some high school, high school guys to all of a sudden, you know, trying to figure out how to do the leadership thing, play calling, everything off season programming. I mean, it went from zero to a hundred real quick. Yeah. Thrown into the fire. <laughs> Damn. No, no oh. doubt. So you talked about the the experimental mindset that you had when you were thrown into that. Where uh, where kind of has that came in your mind? Like, and not just doing what's been done. Where has that kind of thought process came to? Like, all right, we could do these things better, or we can continue to grow this sport and our culture this way. Totally. Yeah. I mean, to be honest with you, I think I don't think I ever necessarily immediately thought, oh, I'm definitely going to coach this game. But when I was playing, and I think like every athlete thinks this to to a certain degree, like we're all, we're all a little bit full of ourselves or we wouldn't be 
compete, compete what you do. And so when I was playing, I was, there was always those moments where I was like, I think I could come up with a better scheme, or I think I could come up with a better off season program. Not that I could at the time, certainly I didn't have the tools or the, the knowledge was to do that at all when I was playing. But I think we all like to a certain degree, there are certain things we really like and certain things we don't like when we're the actual athletes in a program. And so when I, since my head coaching career so quickly after my playing career, I still had that kind of like, um, idealism, like, Oh, if I'm in complete charge of this thing, like I can make it what I would have wanted it to be if I was a player. Um, and so that was, that was kind of the, I guess the impetus behind some of that experimental mindset of like, you know, I still had those fresh thoughts of like, these are all the things I didn't like when I was a player and I'm going to not do those. And these are all the things I liked when I was a player and I'm going to do those things. And so that was kind of where it started. And it started off kind of more with like personal preference, to be honest. I was like, like this, I don't like that. Um, and then the further I got into it and the more I connect with people and started to, to learn more about the game, the more I realized it wasn't like personal preference wasn't enough. Like I really had to find out what the best solution was for a lot of these things. And so that was, it started with kind of my own, like selfishly trying to experiment with some things, but then it kind of grew into, all right, what's the best way to do this? And, and how can I position my team, um, to, to do things in the best possible way for what, for the information that I have currently. Yeah. So when you were kind of thrown into the fire there, was there an idea that you, you like, what was kind of like, was there a big eye opening part of that when you're thrown into this? Like, Oh, I thought it was going to be like this and it was actually like this, or did it kind of make sense to you right away? Uh, I mean, it definitely didn't make sense to me right away. I think the, the hardest thing for me was there were certain things like, certain responsibilities of a head coach that were certainly not my strong suit. And so I had to kind of figure out how to, uh, I think one of the biggest things was finding out how to work with other people who have strengths where you have weaknesses. And so for me, like I'm very much a conceptual ideas driven person, um, but I do need a lot of help carrying those out. And, and that's where I realized I needed those uh, detail oriented who, you know, they, they thrived in, you know, taking an idea that I may have had and, and really taking it to the finish line, because I would often kind of have this ADHD where I'd have an idea, but then I'd lose it because I'd have another idea. And so having some, being able to eventually surround myself with people that uh, kind of able to step in and fill the gaps where I weaknesses and, and this is, this was a leadership principle I was taught pretty early on um, as, as I was growing, um, had a, had a mentor tell me this little story. He was like, you know, if your kid comes home and they bring home their report card and they have an A in math and an F in English, you tell them they need to get better at English. But if your kid comes home and they have an A in math and a C in English, you tell them to become an accountant. And so it's kind of this like funny, cheesy story, but it, but basically the whole was, um, you know, make sure your weaknesses don't sink you. Like they can't be so great that they, that they're causing you to fail. But if you recognize strengths, like go in the direction of those strengths um, and don't try to be a jack of all trades, master of none, like truly lean into your strengths and, and make those the, the most important thing about who you are and the program you want to run. Because if you're trying to do it like somebody else, like somebody else is going to be able to do them better than you can. And so that was, that was a good lesson for me to learn of, you know, 
I, I have certain strengths, I have certain weaknesses, and I want to make sure I lean into my strengths, but then surround myself with people that can help me, you know, bring that F up to a C in English or whatever, whatever the case may be, you know, it's kind of that, um, how can, how can I surround myself with people that are going to, to bring, raise, raise my level into my weak areas, but, but ultimately want to help me run with those strengths. Too. Yeah. And roll the strength, like you mentioned, the strengths and it's what make you who you are. I'm reading the book right. anti-fragile right now. And, uh, it talks about what, one of the lines I liked in there, like the only way a book can fail is if it's boring. And it is, <laughs> exactly. his, his, his whole thing behind that is like, like you mentioned, don't be a jack of all trades, like totally. be take a direction somewhere with your strength and that's going to lead you in so many more places than just trying to be in the middle ground and just average at everything. Without a doubt. Without a doubt. I'm all about that. So when you, uh, cause in the high school sector, you talked about surrounding yourself with these people. Was it the people that were currently there and developing those strengths or just realizing that they had those strengths that you didn't have, or was it actually bringing in new people and surrounding yourself with people to help those? I think it was both. And I mean, the reality is like when you're a high school coach, you have to work with people inside the building and you can selectively bring others in. But, um, the reality if you're practicing at 3 PM, like if that person's not a teacher or has a flexible schedule, like they're, you know, you, you can't just hire anybody. Um, and so one of the things that I wanted to, to make sure that I capitalized on was like, I wanted, um, I wanted people in my, uh, as a part of my staff that were hungry to learn and were enthusiastic and energetic and had a passion for the game. And, and so one of the things that, that we were able to do is we were even able to bring in, um, undergrad college students that loved the game, loved, loved being around the, the players, um, had a passion to learn. Um, and, and really, I think in, in some ways that allowed us to, to continue, um, that experimental model because you had a lot of fresh ideas, a lot of, um, a lot of people that were willing to try certain things. Um, but then you also have to kind of balance that with some of the wisdom of older coaches who have been through the ringer and kind of understand certain things. And so, you know, I, I don't claim that I've cracked the code on that by any means, but I think it's, it's really, you know, so much of staff cohesion comes down to, um, you know, I think it's a, an idea from Ray Dalio, the idea meritocracy, like ultimately like the best idea wins, like that's what we want. Um, whether it's a, an old idea or a new idea, we just, we want to be in pursuit of and find the best solution to these problems. And so we just talked a lot about how, um, you know, we were, we wanted to be a group of problem solvers. And ultimately when we settled on something and we left the room, like that's what we were going to roll with. Um, but even, even having the humility to admit like, Hey, this, this worked or this didn't work. Um, and so we always like kind of had this symbolic track in my office where we drop all of our ideas and have our kind of flesh all of them out. But we always said we wanted to have a big trash can that if, you know, an idea wasn't good, we ripped it out and crumpled it up and threw it and just be being okay doing that. Like you almost have to cycle through 20, 30 ideas before you really land on something that's, that's good or best. And, and a lot of it too, I think comes down to, you know, not only your idea as a coach may be good, but can your athletes feel comfortable executing it consistently? Um, and that, and that was another question we used to ask a lot and we still do is, you know, ultimately the, the players have to carry these things out. And so no matter how good we may feel about something, if the athletes don't feel comfortable, then it's, it's, we're really working against ourselves trying to, trying to ram it through, I guess. 
I, I love to hear that from the, the actual team sport coaching world, because we talk about a lot of time in the sports performance world, the strength conditioning world, uh, mm-hmm. trying to keep the goal, the goal, because a yeah. lot of times in the strength conditioning world, and I'm sure you know it as well, but people are very set on the ways of how it's been done. And it, there, totally. it's a, it's a very group think mindset. And it's very, if you try to break out of that group think it's, it's a very like those people do not like that you are trying to change things, even if it's trying to progress and trying to get forward. So I love that that's coming from a sport coach as well. And seeing right. those kind of like, we're trying to push forward and you like the job, the goal is not to run, let's say, let's say it's ISO just because that's how it's been done. The goal is right. to win the football game and to score exactly. touchdowns. And exactly. I, that's an awesome point. Yeah. Well, and I think there's this kind of unfortunate divide between sport coach and, and performance coach. That's like very, and it may be true in other sports, too but like you know particularly in american football it's this weird thing where uh coaches often like i guess maybe less so in high school they're more involved in high school but there's kind of the strength coach does his or her thing and the the head football coach does his or her thing like they they're they're very divided um especially the higher level you get and i and i think that's an artificial divide because I don't think as a football coach, as a, as someone who thinks about the sport constantly in the scheme, you know, you're ultimately in service to whatever physical capabilities your players have. And so I don't think, I just think it's super unwise for coaches to be, to be separating those two as much as they do. And it's, it's weird because, you know, especially football, they clearly know the importance of a strength staff. Like there's a reason some of these guys are being paid almost a million dollars a year just to not just to run the weight room, but you, you know what I mean? Like to yep. be the sports performance people, like they're, they're compensated. And often like they'll talk about the first hire is the strength coach because this coach believes in, in, in this, that, or the other. But, you know, I, I think it's a responsibility of a sport a position coach. Like what are the, what are the physical demands of, the scheme that you're putting your players in and how do you make sure that they're being trained to that throughout how, like you should be in constant conversation, I, I think. And I think it's not enough for um, a sports performance coach to not understand the demands of the game um, that they're, you know, there, there has to be this, this more cohesion, more cohesion, I think between those two. And that's why I think um, some people that I respect the most are those high school coaches that are doing both yep. that are both, investing in the actual sport and then also maybe coaching another sport or maybe trying to figure out a way to train these athletes to be, to be prepared for the demands that are, that are facing them. And I, and I think, um, I don't know. I think that one of my pet peeves is that there's a lot of football coaches can't really speak to the sports performance world as much, but there's a lot of football coaches that don't know the first thing about what their athletes are, are encountering in their off season program. And then they come out and expect certain things on the field that they haven't necessarily been prepared for or vice versa. I I don't know. I just think that there's kind of this uh, irrational divide between those two that I don't think you really see in like sports like rugby, where it seems like those there's like, there's no separating preparing for the game and and playing for the game. It's like, those things are so intermixed in, in the way I've, I've seen it. And, I don't know. It's it's kind of interesting for me as a football coach to think through um, where that divide even started. Yeah, and I, I like your point of like the, the number one goal is the cohesion between the two, uh, and, sure. and it makes it easy 
in when the the head coach is also the strength coach. And that's what we had in high school because then they understand both. But if you're able to, the more segregated you have and the less skin you have in the game in one realm, if you you're a head football coach and you have no skin in the game in the sports performance realm, right. Or vice versa, then that divide starts to happen. And then that, then the goal to me, the, the goal doesn't stay the goal. The sports performance coach is always focused on how can we get them stronger? How can we get them bigger? Cause that that's my goal in the weight room. And then right. the sport coach is trying to get that scheme to work. Right. And if they both had just came together and realized like the goal at the end of the day is to win. Right. Then I think we would have a much better pathway for all of this. Without a doubt, without a doubt. And, and that's why, you know, for me, when I think of sports performance, like it, and, and I've, I've got friends like, uh, and I think you may have even talked to some of these guys, but like Nick DeMarco at Elon and Eric Corum at William & Mary, like some of these guys, I've had extensive conversations with them about um, having to think through how is our practice planning going to impact our athletes in so many different areas from the physical to the mental to the emotional all these different things. And one of the things that I've picked up from some of the track coaches I've worked with is how important, you know, mental health is and the effect you're going to get in training. Um, you know, how important, uh, fatigue like will factor in, in so many, in so many different areas. And so if you have, um, if you have a incongruent philosophy between a sport coach and a sports coach, um, what ends up happening, I think is that athletes get pulled apart in different directions um, not just physically, but, you know, even from the mental side of things, like not feeling like they are um, being taken care of so that when the game happens, they're not performing at their peak. And that's, that's something that we want always, like everything is in service for us. It's Friday night, but everything is in service of Friday night that um, we are trying to make sure that you're in the best possible position Friday night. And that's mental, that's physical, that's emotional, spiritual. It's like all in all encompassing. We want you to feel so free on that, on that night. Um, for other coaches, it's, you know, Saturday or Sunday, but how can we make sure that that's, that everything builds to that and that we're caring for our athletes so that they can experience that fulfillment that occurs during the game. And that's why they're playing the sport really honestly. Yeah. And that's something that I think as young coaches with, with us and something that I kind of fear of losing, like I want to continue to keep myself into these sports. So I'm feeling what they're feeling, but mm-hmm. I think that might be lost a little bit with some older coaches sometimes is, is that emotional and that, that the spiritual and the like psychological side of things is when they, they have that big game on Friday and it's not just, Oh yeah, we, we perfected these plays and we, we're looking good in the weight room. It's like this, maybe that's a huge pressure game for that uh, person. And then trying to help them through that process or, and I love the other point that you brought up is trying to make like this sport enjoyable for them. You know, you know, it, in any, doesn't matter the level you're at. If if the person is not enjoying it, if they, they feel like they have to like grind through this practice or grind through this lift and there's really not an overarching enjoyment or purpose for them, Right. You're not going to get the max out of them. No, no. Uh, and, and that's why, you know, we talk so much about uh, kind of hitting peak performance so often, which is why I've shifted my entire program from kind of bigger, faster, stronger model to just focusing on speed development because I want, and I, I just think speed development kind of hits on everything because it gets your central nervous system way up. It, you know, allows you to, to operate at the, at the highest capacity. And ultimately like that's the, 
that's the big goal. We want, we want everybody focused on that. And so, you know, one of the things that we've, we've talked about a lot over the years is that fresh is fast and fast is fun. And like, ultimately fun is, is an, is a goal that we've incorporated in. Like we want you to enjoy this. Like this is, you know, for, for a lot of athletes, like, especially on the football field, like you only get you know, whether it's 10 Friday nights a year, like there's so few opportunities to enjoy the game and there's so many opportunities to critique and to criticize and to, um, to look for mistakes. But, but we want you to like, I I just, I want the athletes I coach to have the, like those positive feelings about the game. Um, because those are some of the things that I miss the most that I wish I could recreate somehow. And I, I don't have the capabilities to recreate that because the sport is, is over for me. And then when you're going about trying to create, is it creating the atmosphere, creating the culture to elicit this response? Like how do you go about doing that in your practices or your games? Yeah. Well, with, with practices, I think, you know, one of the things that, that I've gotten from some of the coaches I've talked to is like, I think in general, people are pretty naturally competitive. And, you know, one of the things that I think football has been doing for years and years and years is that we've pitted people on the same team against each other to kind of bring out that competitiveness. And I'm not saying that's necessarily one of the things that I see as an opportunity in the sports performance world is when you allow somebody to compete against a weight, against the stopwatch, you're bringing uh, those, that competitive feeling without necessarily pitting them against one another. And obviously like there is going to always be that natural competition of, I want to be the fastest kid on the team. I want to be the strongest kid on the team, whatever the case may be. Um, but we create, um, opportunities for them to be competitive with almost without them even thinking about it. I think you see a lot of coaches that, um, are trying to, uh, are trying to create competitive situations, which I think is a good thing, but like, it doesn't take much to, in my opinion, for, especially for high school athletes, but I would imagine for college athletes as well is you, you put a, a free lap time and system on somebody and tell them to run through a 10 meter fly. Like no one wants to jog through that. Like no one's going to jog through that. I've never seen it in my three years doing it. I've never seen an athlete jog through that because they, the, the clock's on. Or if you roll a basketball out at a like football lift and you say like, who's got the best dunk, like you're going to see guys, putting intent into the ground and rising up and throwing down. And like you're, you just created a competitive environment and they don't even feel like they're, they're enjoying that. Like there's something about like creating those, those moments instead of just, just harping on technique all the time, or just talking about, um, you know, beating our opponent or beating each other. You know, I think there's ways to create like kind of creatively uh, craft these environments where they're going to, experience the joy of competition, not just the, the, you know, back and forth. Um, and so we just try to come up with those things, um, where we, where we try and give them opportunities to be competitive and have a lot and exert a lot of effort without them feeling like it's punishment or feel like it's punitive or anything like that. Yeah. And like you, you said, the natural competitiveness comes out by itself. Like you, you really don't have to. And this, this is what we do with a lot of our stuff with my athletes is we try to gamify things. Um, For sure. Yeah. Instead of running, let's say like, again, there, there's agility benefits here obviously as well, but instead of doing like a three and co- three cone shuffle or something like that, we're, we're going to put two guys and do like mirror drills and that type of thing. Cause nobody totally. like the, the intent that you're going to get from that when 
two competitive, naturally competitive people are just going at it. Like yes, the intent and the actions that you're going to get out of that is going to greatly succeed anything else that you're going to do that day. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and I think like when you're doing something like that, you're getting, you're getting the response you need, but you're able to shrink the amount of time you need in, in those situations. And so one of the things that we try and do is, you know, and this is a principle that I, that I've got from Tony Holler and others is that, you know, we, we want to make sure there's always a little bit of gas in the tank for the next day. Like I, I always, um, like I would much rather be holding a kid back and saying, no, you can't do that extra rep than kicking a kid along saying, do more, do more, do more. And so I think that's the challenge for us coaches. I think in the past it was kind of like everyone had this mindset of more is better. And so you just, you know, you, the, the kids that got the most praise within a football program are the ones that were going after it, doing extra work, doing extra reps. And that was me. I was the try hard, you know, I tried so hard when I played and what ended up happening is I built up injuries and all sorts of, um, all sorts of complications from being the guy that was always doing extra work. And I think, um, unfortunately for me is a lot of the work I did was to kind of prove that I was a hard worker, but it didn't actually make me a better player. And so we want to try and create opportunities for our athletes to, like you were saying, have high intensity, high intent moments where they're competing very, uh, like as close to full speed as, as we can possibly get them and then backing them off so they can do it again after they've been rested. Um, because the last thing we want to do is run somebody through a hundred reps of something, you know, three quarters because they're not getting any better and it's wearing them out in so many different ways. And so if we can find ways to create high intensity, for short durations, I think that's the game of football, high intensity for short durations, but then also giving them the rest that they need so that um, they can come back and bring that intensity again. Because otherwise, I think you see a tremendous drop-off with with high school athletes in particular, a tremendous drop-off as they just accrue more and more and more work. Um, they, they Not only does the intensity level drop, but their level of enthusiasm drops. I mean, we've all been out there for a Wednesday practice when nobody wants to be there. And our goal is always, I want this, I want to be so efficient in what we do that, you know, everything we do has a purpose and we want you to want to be out here as much as possible because that's kind of the emotional part of it. Like if, if I want to be at practice, the effort and focus is going to be there. Yeah. And trying to create the culture that praises these things and not, not the, not the necessarily, and obviously coaches love effort, but praising and creating the culture that surrounds yourself and pushes these things forward. Because I mentioned like the same thing, like I, I, I was that try hard player, totally. but like what I try to tell coaches all the time is like, you didn't want 11 of me on the field. Right. You know, like you wanted that freak athlete that yep. loves going hard for three seconds and then we'll die. But, it's what makes him a freak athlete, you know? Yeah, exactly. And trying to create a culture that, and one of the reasons I was a tryhard athlete is because I was praised for it. Absolutely. Know? And, and that 100%. was one of the things is like, I continue to get praised for this, so I continue to do it. But was it the smartest thing? Absolutely not. Was that right. the best way to train? No. So trying yeah. to create a, I love that point of creating that culture that will praise things that is going to get the best out of all athletes, not yes. just that mule that you have. Yeah, for sure. Well, and, and for like, for example, I had, I have plenty of tryhards on my team as well. And I jokingly call them tryhards. I mean, I, I, I love them. They're great kids. They work super hard. But I've had 
moments with with a defensive lineman, for example, who um, tried really hard, busted in the weight room. Um, you know, great kid, really good player for us, all conference player. And I, I kept telling him, you know, you know, we would run ten meter flies all the time, and he would be in like the one twenties, which you know, for a D lineman, not bad. But we really asked him to focus more on speed and less less in the weight room because he was racking up injuries that were very much weight room injuries from deep cleaning and from you know just beating up his body four days a week, whatever the case may be, always doing extra stuff. And so we asked him to do less. We had him really focus on technique and putting force into the ground, all these different things. And unfortunately he's, he's a senior now, so he's, he's no longer playing for us, but we had him out on the track the other day and he ran like a 104 10 meter fly, like a kid that went from the one twenties to a 104. Like that's, that's flying. And not only that, but the, the two days before he got into the weight room and broken a couple of weight room records for us because he's rested because he's explosive because his central nervous system's like all the way up and he's, he's understanding his body better, understanding how to put force into the ground. And he is happier than he's ever been because he was always the kid that was doing way too much. Um, and, and part of what made him a good player, frankly, was that he did way too much and worked out probably too much in the weight room. But at the same time, like getting a, a kid like that to transform their mindset into not only trying hard and sweating and grinding it out, but also now you too can be an elite level athlete. Like we believe that you can, that you can run fast, that you can jump high, that you're not just the muscled up grinder. Um, and so that's just something that we, we try and try and push is like, I think with the tryhards, a lot of times they don't get coached, right? Not right. What I'm, I guess what I mean is like, we don't think of, all right, how are we going to tune up this kid, this kid's technique so that he can be more of an elite athlete or she can be more of an elite athlete instead of praising like, Hey, great job working hard. I see you sweating. I see you breathing heavy. Like that's what we want, you know, because there are ways that we can make them even better. Um, if we're getting proper rest and proper intensity level, when we're, when we're going hard, we go hard when we're resting, we're actually resting. Yeah. And as a coach, I think that's a big, and it was a big thing for me as well. Cause like as a, you, as a coach, you naturally love that try hard and you naturally totally. want to give them 100%. compliments for it. Cause like, as soon as you say something, it's like, they're doing it. It's, it's mm-hmm. so easy to coach them. Yeah. But one of my biggest, and this is what I focused on this past year is changing that with me is taking that step back and realize like what they need is to be pulled back. And, right. almost, and a lot of times something like, like sometimes you have to yell at a try hard for doing too much, you know, so yep. something exactly. you never yell at anybody else for doing, but these guys, you need to pull them back. And that's the only way you're going to get them to do it. Yeah, for sure. Well, well, and, and the reality is that that goes back to creating that environment where you're trying to create moments of extreme competition without them even thinking about it. Like I, like one of my things that made cringe is when you know I hear athletes whether it's in other sports or on other teams where they're talking about like oh today is going to be a conditioning day like we're going to run 16 110s like and they're all dreading it like they didn't sleep the night before because they're going to puke and you know one of the things that and, and I'm not saying there's you know I know coaches have different perspectives on this but for me personally I think of sprinting the most athletic thing a person can do in terms of coordination, in terms of force produced and in terms of all these things. And ultimately what often will help us win on Friday night is somebody being able to sprint full speed on a post route 
catch the ball and score a touchdown. Like that's, what's going to help us win. And so one of the things that we really tried to get rid of was this idea that running was punishment, like running. That's, that's not punishment. Running is the most elite athletic thing you can do. And so if punishment needs to happen, I did not want it to be associated with running. Like there was no get on the line with us. There's none of that. Cause, because I want you to associate running as a privilege. Like it's the best thing you can do. And I always tell coaches, like, especially as a high school football coach, because the way the culture is like, this is just the reality of it. When you're dealing with 14 to 18 year old uh, young men. And obviously there's, there's some young ladies playing as well, but primarily young men, you, whatever you praise, you're going to get whatever you hold up as the ideal, like that's what you're going to get. You get what you emphasize. And so, you know, for us, we just decided to start emphasizing speed. Um, that that was going to be the thing. Like we're like, we were going to record those 10 meter fly times, but I wasn't going to get held up or, or tied up in your bench press. Cause the reality is like, I'd been recording that for years and I didn't see much of a, a of a benefit or I didn't see championships being won just because of the bench press. Mm-hmm. Um, but I saw games being completely changed and teams being changed by increasing their overall team speed like that. That was something that just popped off the film for me. And so that was something that, and, and again, bench press has a place, squat has a place, like all these activities, all these training methods have a place. But I think, you know, for me, and this is, this is a story I always tell people for me, like I had all these goal weight room there and I hit a lot of them, but they were pulling me in different directions. It was like, I wanted to 500 pounds and I wanted to squat, blah, blah, blah. Like all the, I had all these goals spread out and they, like, what were they leading me toward? They were kind of on their own. Like they were in these little silos. And instead of me becoming a better player, I was just chasing strength in these like particular areas. And so it didn't, it didn't find, it didn't find its, uh, its home really in anything. And so for me, like what's been cool about testing speed a lot and especially the 10 meter fly is like you, you can, it's such a diagnostic test for us now. Like, of course I want to know how fast kids are getting and I want them to have that intent, but I'm like, man, you're like 0.5 off today. Like is something going on at home? Like you can, you can tell these like emotional things. Like, are you tired? Are you stressed? Are you like, there's so many things you can tell when you're testing speed because you just can't hide it in the same way that you can hide things in, in other areas, in my opinion. Um, and so, you know, that's, that's just something we emphasize that. And so we get that, like we, we see improvements in speed because we emphasize it and, you know, ultimately you have to, you have to plant your flag somewhere and that's just where we've decided to plant it. But for other programs, it may be something else. I, 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 my, one of my favorite things that you mentioned is like, just because you emphasize speed does not mean everything else is cut out. No, not at all. Because this is something that's, uh, I've been putting out stuff about like, maybe Olympic lifting isn't the best thing. Maybe powerlifting isn't the best thing. Because if you Olympic lift a lot and that's your main goal, you're going to get really good at Olympic lifting. Absolutely. You power lift, you squat, you bench, like you're going to become a really good bench presser. You're going to become a really good squatter. But again, if our goal is to become a really good football player, a really good athlete, we need to do, emphasize being a really good football player, emphasize being a really good athlete. And that's something that, it seems very black and white if you just take a step back and look at it, but there's a lot of people that it, it's the squat, it's the bench, it's the right. Olympic lifts, and it, right. it's very tough for them to kind of break out of that mindset because it's it's what's worked for them. And like, yeah. I, I've been there too. Like, I've sworn by the squat, I've sworn by this because that's what of helped course. me. And as soon as I was able to take a step back, I'm like, that really wasn't like that wasn't it. Like, that wasn't it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 
So, well, and, and for me as, as a coach, one of the things that I, I think about a lot is all of these things are available to us. Um, and, you know, if we have athletes that are achieving certain levels of expertise, like we can challenge them with other things. You know, I think marks of great athletes is their ability to pick something up quickly and adapt to it quickly. And, and then you, and then in some ways, like as a coach, like when you have juniors and seniors, that maybe you've just been hex bar deadlifting with them until that point, And then you teach them an Olympic circuit or, or whatever the case may be. And they're able to pick that up and master it because they have, they're able to get in those body positions. They're able to be strong in a, in a, like a long range of motion or whatever, um, and, and be powerful in all these things. But I think, um, I, I think a lot of coaches think like, I want to develop all this technique early on, and, and I, I may be way off on this, but me, like I want to almost develop your central nervous system and your ability to pick up on things more so like let's throw medicine balls. Let's, you know, maybe hex bar deadlift. Let's do Let's, uh, let's try and find ways to get you coordinated and get you flexible and all these different things. And then by the time we get to it, we should be able to accomplish a lot of these more technique based lifts. And that may be something that we can challenge athletes with. Like if they're, if they're getting, getting nothing out of certain movements because we've tapped out all that potential, maybe we try and teach them something else. And I, and I just think, I don't think it's, it's one of those things where it's like, this is the right to do it. And this isn't, I think with each individual athlete, that there are things that really work for certain people and really don't work for others. And I think being attentive to that and not just saying, um, you know, you know, not, not just saying like, this is, this is the way it's the way it's done. This is the best way forward. I think you have to, as a, the way I think of it as a team, we have to have certain things that we say, like, this is what we're about. But then with individuals, how do we test them? How do we um, challenge them to, to continue growing as athletes um, after they've mastered certain things? How can we get them to advance to, to the next thing? Yeah. And it's, it, it comes back to a little bit of, of like the law of diminishing, diminishing returns as well. Right. Like if somebody has a 500 pound squat, getting that 500 pound squat to like, let's say five ten, like that's probably not the amount of effort that's going to take out right. of everything else is not going to do anything. Whereas right. if that person sucks at something, like maybe it's a pistol squat, maybe it's something else that you could just work on and they're going to be terrible at the progress you're going to see yeah, exactly. so much less effort is going to explode exactly. through there. Well, and, and I think that with the athletes I've worked with, this, this is again, my opinion, but I think, I think the majority of athletes want to do things they're already good at. Yeah. Like they, they want, so for me, like I was actually pretty, since I had learned it early, I was pretty good at, at power cleaning. Yep. So I just wanted to do that. Like, cause I knew I would get praised for it. A, cause I would always put up a good weight and I just knew, I felt comfortable and confident that I could do it. And like you said, it was like chasing trying to chase from 315 to 330. Like I was pushing so hard for that. And it's like, you know, did I need any more weight on the bar? Probably not. Like, did that make me a better football player? Probably not. But because I was good at it, I pushed in that direction instead of having people pull me back and say, Hey, like, yeah, you're good at that. Like that's, that's good enough for now. And why don't you, why don't you improve over in this area? Why don't you give this a shot? Why don't you learn and grow and be adaptable instead of just, going hard after the things you're already good at. And I think that's when we, you know, we're saying it a little bit jokingly, but the whole like try hard mentality, it's, 
seeking the praise of, of coaches or superiors, but it's also trying to find ways to continue to do things you're moderately or pretty good at. Yep. And I think that's, that's where you can get into some trouble with athletes is they, they're going to naturally do the things they're good at. How do you challenge them and find ways to get them to do things they're not as good at and adapt and then feel a huge sense of confidence because they were able to adapt to that movement. And some of the sprint drills we do, like some of the strongest kids on the team can't do it at first. Like they can't do the canter or the trot, like they can't do the, the bounds and different things like that. But then once they, once it clicks for them, confidence because I mastered a movement. And even though it's, it seems pretty simple on the outside looking in, like it's, I, I think there's something to be said about the confidence gains that can come from that instead of just repeatedly doing things you're already good at and you know, you're good at. Yeah. And that's uh that's something this past year that I focused on is as a coach myself being kind of like my role is to kind of take that ego out of what you're doing. Cause that, that's one of the reasons like you want to do it. You want to show For the sure. rest of the team that you're, you're good at this lift and you're good at that. Exactly. And now my role is trying to almost expose things that you're trying to find things that you're bad at. So we can work on those things and grow. And one of the things like the For football sure. guys, like we've been working on like stuff like cartwheels and rolls and like, totally. That, yeah. You have guys Absolutely. that can squat 500 pounds and like you'd put them in the weight room and you're like, wow, that's a freak athlete. Yeah. And like they, they don't even know what a cartwheel is. No doubt. And, things like that. So trying to progress them in that way. One of the, uh, one of the things that I want to get to in this podcast, because I loved how you brought it up was your, your speed advantage. And you've talked about the importance of speed throughout, but I want to dive into a little bit of why speed is so important. And you talk a little bit about you win with speed or tactics because both by time or both by space for you. Can you talk about why that's so important? Yeah. I mean, obviously I think the whole game of football comes down to, you know, for the offense is creating space and for the defense is closing space. And I realize like there's, there's some nuance to that, but I, I think it's important to think through ways that we can simplify the game philosophically so we can understand what we're trying to do a little bit better. And, you know, I always tell people like, good offense is simple. It's you either have, you either get one gap open in the run game or you get one guy open in the pass game. Like that's really all you need for a successful play. Um, and defensively, obviously it's a little more complicated, especially in the modern game, but I think closing space and, and taking the air out of, um, space between defenders and offensive players is, is the most important thing. And the, the reason speed is so important is because what speed does is it lengthens it lengthens the relationship between players because for example, if I'm, if I'm a receiver and I'm a threat to, to win deep in the pass game, you either have to give me cushion or concede a loss to me in, in winning deep, or you play zone coverage and limit what you can do schematically. And so I think for, for offenses, especially thinking about speed is important because if if I have a speed advantage over particular players or on a whole, they have to play me a certain way. And that simplifies the game for me. Whereas if I don't have the speed advantage and I know that they, they can, they, they, if I don't have the speed advantage, I think that as an offensive coach, the defense has an opportunity to do more things to try and take advantage of me um, and close more space and put more people in the box and play press coverage and do things that, really limit what I can do as a, as an offense. And so, you know, I I just think it all comes back to that. And obviously like there are areas of physicality that matter. Like if, you know, 
I, I know I've talked to some coaches that talked about like, what if you have, what if you don't, what if you lack the strength advantage? Like that's obviously something that you have to, to think about because in football, as, as everyone knows and talks about, like the, the game is, is often won and lost up front, but there are schematic ways that you can compensate for a lack of size or a lack of strength, whether it's, um, you know, blitzing from a defensive perspective or running triple option concepts or air concept, um, as an offense, I think there are ways that you can compensate if you have the speed advantage. Um, and I think it's a lot, it's a lot more difficult for football teams to overcome a speed, a, a disadvantage in the speed department than it is for them to overcome a disadvantage in the strength or size department, um, just in the way the game is played these days. And so that's why for me, like everything just came back to that um, because there are ways within our scheme and what we're trying to do that we can, we can cover for some of those deficiencies, deficiencies we may have uh, up front or, or size wise. So when you're, when you're trying to break down this film and you're looking at another team, how do you establish like you have the speed advantage? Like what's kind of your process of going about that? Yeah. I mean, I think it, I think it, uh, it starts in a, it, it comes in a couple different ways. The first is, I think I always think kind of run game to pass game. So I kind of think when we're, when we're thinking of our zone run schemes, can we, when we're running zone, say outside zone, can we reach the defensive end or can we climb up to a linebacker and cut him off? Or is, is their defense going to be able to rally to the football faster than we can get the edge? Um, and obviously there are some creative ways you can do it with option with, you know, pin and pull different things like that. But, um, I think that's something I'm, I'm asking myself a lot. Can we get the edge or are they always going to have the advantage? Are they going to be able to spill and run us down? So, cause there's two, there's really two options for, for most defenses. You're either going to box everything in, join everything in and set an edge, or you're going to spill everything and run over the top to it. And I think it always works in the favor of the defense to spill and run, run, run two things if they have, the speed advantage. Um, so I'm trying to figure out, you know, for, for my sake as an offensive coach, can we get the edge? If we can't get the edge, then we probably don't have the speed advantage in the, in the run game. And then I'm asking myself in the past game, do we have the speed advantage? And that's really, you know, cause because I know my, um, and their 10 meter flies so intimately cause we test every week. So I know exactly where they're at, even over the course of the season. Um, I, like what level of speed we're working with. And based on what I know, I'm generally able to, to pick up compared to those defense, like what kind of advantage we're going to have um, in the past game. And, and really you know, a lot of it comes down to like, there are other factors in that, like arm strength of the quarterback and um, what kind of defense the, the, our opponent is playing. But if they're going to give us a lot of cushion, we have tons of room underneath to throw the football um, and, and get out in space. But if we don't have the speed advantage, if their defensive backs are elite, talented players, then we're probably going to have to use um, crossing routes, mesh, in-breaking, out-breaking routes, different things like that to let us create separation in other ways. And so that's, I mean, it's, it's kind of a, it's maybe an oversimplified way of doing things, but it's a way of just thinking through that if, if I have more speed on the field, it gives me... I basically can do less from a play perspective, but get more out of it. So can you break down um, straight traditional speed, like sprinting speed and yeah. game speed? And how, how, how do you go about that? Like, 
is the fastest sprinters that you have. A lot of times they aren't the fastest on the field trying to process and go about information. So can you break that down? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think, uh, I think that's something that you, you know, I don't know. I think the biggest thing is, um, is not so much about like in-game speed. I think we're really talking about body control um, because, you know, I think there are people that can get going full speed, but then they can't really steer their body. So for example, like we, we try and get guys running curves or um, doing more like basketball style stuff. Like one of the drills that we do is we have the quarterback stand on the baseline, throw a route to the receiver, the receiver catches it. He flips the ball to the coach, the coach bounce passes him a basketball. He goes up and dunker layup. Um, so it's kind of, mediums and so we're basically looking for you to not only develop that straight line skill of you know football like catching the ball in a route and like that but transitioning in your mind to body control and like the way the basketball players often have to absorb contact or change direction or you know even the level with which basketball players play out like their hips are a little bit lower um, and so getting our skill players to kind of think in those terms I think is important and so you know, I, I think um, max speed is hugely important from a, a sprinting perspective, but the reality is most of our athletes are never going to get to that peak speed in game. And so really we just want to build that capacity up we can so that when they do run at a slower pace, they're way more in control of their body. Um, and that's, that's really the whole goal. Like when we'll often have, when we run our 10 meter flies, we'll often have guys that will like, run out of their shoes. Like they're trying to run so fast that they stay in control of their body. And so we get them to the place where they're so confident running full speed that when they're running 80%, it's still fast and they're very much in control and they're, they're able to control their pace a lot more. So one of the things that I try and build is, is getting them to like, from a time perspective, all right, try and run an 85, 85% and see if you can pace out an 85%. And so I think that's like, it's learning your body and understanding how to handle um, 85% and then be able to ramp it up to a hundred and, and kind of modulate a little bit. Yeah. Trying to create the speed reserve a little bit for them. So for sure. 80% I mean, that's, is that's, faster than people's hundred percent when they're trying to catch up. Absolutely. That's, that's huge. So with the tactics and the actual play calling and this kind of process of things, how do you go about teaching that in the high school realm to where it's not like, blowing their minds with everything like they have school, they have all these things and they're, they're not professional football players yet. No, for sure. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think one of the things that we, uh, one of the things that I think a lot about is people's learning styles. And, and I think that there's, um, I think every athlete learns a little bit differently. So one of the things that I wanted to do is make sure that I wasn't just handing them a playbook and saying, memorize this, like install starts on Monday. So we've done a couple things that I like. And again, one of the, when I tell people this, I'm, I'm not necessarily giving anyone the recipe because it's, it works where I'm at currently, but if I'm in another context, I may change the way I do things. So like, it's very context specific, but for, for me, where I'm at currently, we use a syllabus model for our playbook throughout the season. And so instead of trying to install everything in fall camp, we spread out our install throughout the season. So where our whole playbook isn't going in until the end of the year. And so it's kind of the same as like, you wouldn't take AP us history and try and learn everything in the first three weeks and then just kind of implement 
learn the rest of the course. Like you're going to, you're going to take the whole course to learn all of the material. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's a miss with a lot of, um, a lot of the ways f- football programs are run is they everything right away and live off of it throughout the whole year instead of maybe going in with a little bit less in week one. But by the time you get to week 12, you have access to giving it to them in reasonable portions. Like they're able to digest a little bit better. And so we try and we try and follow that model as best we can. And some of the installs are based on opponents, but for the most part, it's like we've mapped out how that install is going to happen throughout the year. And then in terms of actually teaching, we don't teach particular plays. We teach concepts. So we basically use chunking where, you know, I can put three different concepts together and make a play. And so since we've worked on the component parts so many times, there's, there I've called plays in games that we've never repped, but it's a combination of three different concepts and they know the concepts and they understand how these things work. And so they're able to execute the play, even though we've never done it in practice. So it's breaking it down into its component parts so that they understand that when you combine inside zone with orbit motion, you can create a triple option, you know, all, you just create an option play, even though you've never really run option before. So it's, it's different things like that, where you can teaching to concepts instead of particular plays. So I don't want to teach to the test. I want to give them a comprehensive understanding of what is going on in the game and on the field. And then when it comes to actually teaching, um, you know, this is where I get in, you know, the importance of kind of clearing your mind, meditation, breath work, different things like that. So like when we come in for our install meetings, we'll start um, with like three minutes of breathing exercises and basically meditation where they're laying on the ground to kind of center them in that environment where, you know, everything that you just had during the day is now we're here, we're going to be present for this and we'll install one thing and then we'll have everybody stand up, leave the room come back in and we'll install the next thing. It's just matching like with learning. And one of the things that we'll do is we'll, um, we'll try and like mix media. We'll have them walk through it and then we'll have somebody draw it up on the board and then we'll have, we'll hand out poker chips and they'll, they'll walk through or they'll kind of go through it as if they, you know, they're, they're drawing, like not drawing up the scheme, but like setting up like little, um, dots with their and just giving them a whole bunch of different ways to see it because you never know whose learning style is going to kick in at any one of those things. I think the traditional model is like you coach draws it on the board, first group walks through it, we go out on the field and we run it. Um, and, and I think that's, you know, there's, there's important stuff in all that, but I think mixing mediums and giving them a lot of different opportunities to learn something helps them digest it because you never know which kid's going to get it which learning style. Yeah. And I think that the global, I love the global teaching of kind of the why and like kind of what you're doing rather than just the specific parts uh, allows your team to be very adaptable. You know, like this is our global concepts of what we're doing. It's not just, Hey, this is play a, you know, right. Exactly. And it allows you to adapt and be it change instead of being, this is what we got. We got these five plays for this game. Like now what? Yeah. Well, and in high school football, like you, you obviously game plan and, but the reality is there's a lot of times you get into these games and everything you worked on that whole week is no longer relevant because they just changed their entire defense for you. (laughs) And so I think, 
I think basically what, what are the things that we try and do with it within our concepts is say, like, generally speaking, if we do this, the defense can only do so many things. So we're going to know how to run this against just about anything we can see. And then you have to freak out when they come that they're in a three man front and all of a sudden they come out in a four man front. Like we don't have to freak out or, or lose our minds about it because we know that our concepts can work against no matter what front they're in or what coverage they're in. Like we're trying to get, I always talk about like, we want all weather plays. We want all weather concepts. Like we, we don't want to try and drop plays just to beat this one team. We want to drop plays that can generally work against just about everything. And so that's part of my, my whole, um, you know, experiment and learning through social media is I'm, tr- I'm trying to find the best out there that works generally against everything and take as much of that as possible instead of trying to um, always be playing this mass- master game of chess with the other coordinator. Like I want him to have to respond to me, not just me saying, oh, you, you know, you win that rep, I'll get the next one. You know, I want, I want the opponent to have to respond to us because we're doing the things that we do. I love the, um, the, the, the thought process of you might have to change on the fly and be able to adapt. And in the sports, for, sports performance world, that's it's very applicable because you get there um, and you have a day where the guy's going to sleep at all. And you, you had this right. whole sprint session scheduled and now you're stuck. And if you aren't able to adapt and rewire and change what you had written on that board, you spent the time writing it up, then you're screwed for that day. Absolutely. Um, so I love that you brought that up in the sports realm is like, yeah, d- you can write the perfect plan, but in that situation, if you're not able to adapt, none of that, none of what you worked on matters. Absolutely. One of my favorite stories, um, I think is, I think Mike wrote a book about Bill Belichick. Um, and one of the things he said is that when they would play a game, Bill Belichick would spend the entire order trying to figure out. And if they had great, if they hadn't, he was already working on the, um, the adjustments to make the adjustments for the second quarter when most coaches are waiting till halftime to make their adjustments. And so that's something that I tried to kind of adopt of like, how can we, how can we adjust before the second quarter starts? because we may need to make those adjustments. And if we practice everything right and everything's working great, we'll roll with it. Um, but always be thinking about, you know, what is our, what are our contingency plan? What are, how are we going to adjust to the things that we see and have adaptability important because, you know, if you go out with this rigid game plan and, you know, obviously some coaches prefer to script and, and do their, do their thing for me, just the way I see the game, I, I want to have an opportunity to adjust times. Like I never be locked into anything. Um, so obviously you have to prepare and you have to be ready, but having those concepts um, available, I think it, it gives you an opportunity to adjust more quickly than, than maybe other, other systems. For sure. All right. So the last, the last question, and I kind of, I, I really like this question in the sports performance realm. Mm-hmm. What has been in the past year, maybe six months, maybe it's a month, maybe it's this week, uh, the biggest eye opener for you and your training and your philosophies for your sport? Like what has been like, oh, wow, that. That's a, that's a great question. Um, you know, I think I, I always wish like 12 different lifetimes where I could like, like go all in on certain subjects or, you know, coach certain offenses or, or different things like that. I feel like I'm always eating as much as I can. And then I, you know, I'm onto something else, but um, this is, this is something I've been really interested in lately in the sports world is just the role of feet and the contact that we're making with the ground, both when we're running and when we're 
stationary. And, um, you know, one of the things that I've been thinking about a lot, especially with, you know, with our defensive backs, we a lot of press coverage. And so thinking about that we can uh, essentially get our feet in a position to activate all of our muscles and tendons as much as possible. And so, um, you know, we've been playing around with, you know, want our defensive backs where we want the weight on their feet um, before we start to try and string up that tendon between your, you know, your big toe and your heel. I don't even know what it's called, but I just know it exists. Um, string that up so that you can, so it really fires like all the back half of your leg. And you, you know that you probably know the anatomy a lot better than I do, but um, finding out ways that we can almost like a bow so that their first movement is really powerful and almost finding like that, the equivalent of like a block start for somebody in a, um, in a squared up position. Um, and then another thing that I've into based on some of the foot stuff in, and, um, Andy Ryland shared this with me over at USA football is there's been studies that have come out that say that the false step actually gives you an advantage in, yep ultimately in creating separation and explosiveness because it gets you in a better body position, apparently. Um, and obviously coming up, I was always coached, no false steps, no false steps. And so just having a little bit more um, understanding of that says, you know, maybe instead of trying to coach the false step out, just kind of letting it happen and being able to coach other things, like not having to worry about that, not having to spend any time with like my linebackers on false step stuff or my DBs, like letting it happen. Uh, I think the, the feet is, is something I'm really interested in. The false step I think is really, really interesting to me, but ultimately trying to figure out ways to not lose energy when we're running or jumping or tackling or any of these things, like how can we be the most solid we can be? And I think everything starts with those feet and, you know, when you go up through those joints, like there, you have opportunities to lose energy at each spot with the ankles and the knees and the hips, you know, you have opportunities to lose energy. So trying to maintain as much of the energy through the ground that we can to be um, explosive skill position players and really, you know, physical grounded, you know, in the trenches as well. So So the foot stuff, um, yeah, we call it, um, it's ankle porn is what we talk about all the time here, <laughs> but, totally. uh, just talk about, like you talk about with that false step or you just talk about watching super elite level athletes, like what they do and the movements that they have. Like a lot of it's like stuff that we try to coach out of people. Oh, and, without a doubt. And if you watch this person do it over and over again, and a Darian bar makes a really good point is like, if all these really good dudes that are winning at their sport and are phenomenal at it. Like if they continually do these things, why are we coaching it out of other people? Yeah. They're probably doing it for a reason. So that uh, Darian Barr would be a guy that ha have you listened or read any of his stuff? No, I'm going to have to dig into that. For yeah. Sure. So he's a, That's he's awesome. a guy, if you're looking for feet, like he's, when you try to talk to him, it, it blows your mind. Like some of the yeah. stuff he talks about, you're like, holy crap. Like didn't even That's think awesome. about that. But his, his whole thing is watching elite level athletes, seeing what they do. And then try to talk about why they are self-correcting in that position, why their feet are doing that, why their ankles and shins are getting into that position to put themselves in a position to win and be explosive and be fast. Yeah. So we can tr transition to our rapid fire round here. First question, what is like, what are your favorite books that you think the listeners can get a lot out of these? This is one of my favorite questions is some value books that 
have helped you in your journey of to become who you've become and kind of push you forward? Yeah, for sure. I think uh, two of the two of the most uh, impactful books I've read kind of recently, um, like over the past couple of years, I guess. The first is Peak by Anders Ericsson. It's kind of um, he's the guy that did the study that Malcolm Gladwell kind of took for um, the ten thousand hours, uh, and he basically makes some corrections on on the ways that the public has kind of received that study and basically um, given us a deeper understanding of deliberate practice, which I think was, was really good for me just to think about um, if I'm, if I'm looking to make improvement physically, cognitively in so many other areas of my life, um, what are the steps to really take toward that? Um, And so that, that had a huge impact on me. And then the other is uh, essentialism by Greg McEwen. I think that's uh, been a pretty popular book over the past couple of years, but it really, helped me clarify some things of, of really stripping things down, um, to what matters most and, and running after that and pushing that in that direction instead of, um, trying to say yes to everything, really saying the big yes to certain things and and really being able to say no to a lot of other things. And, um, you know, I think ultimately those two books less so than just giving you the how, how to do certain things. It gives you, um, an understanding of, of why you're doing certain things. Um, and, and that's, that's always helpful for me because I, I usually find my way to the, the how and how it actually works itself out in different ways than, than people usually recommend. But, um, this really kind of philosophically gave me some good directions to push in to, to hopefully become a better coach. Yeah. Essentialism is, it's probably unrecommended four or five times on here too. So <laughs> it's gotta be a good one. Yeah. Next question. Who is a guest that you think we should have on that the listeners could probably get a lot of knowledge out of? So, um, I would say a good friend of mine who's actually a uh, sprint coach at Duke university. His name's Mark Mueller. And he, he trained me back when I was trying to give professional football a shot. And he really changed my perspective on a lot of things. He really pushed me out of the mindset of, of trying hard and, and pushing through the pain and really trying to become an elite athlete. And that was the first, he was the first coach I ever had who really gave me a fresh perspective on the way things could be. And to be honest, like all that combine prep and training I did with him, that was the most enjoyable block of training I've ever done in my life. Um, and I made huge strides physically, mentally, emotionally, all of these, all of these areas. And, you know, I think, I think good coaches have that effect, like good coaches help you to enjoy hard work and the work was hard, but we also rested enough that I was able to kind of get the most out of it. So, um, you know, I, I was able to, to really achieve through that, I think. So that was, that was something that, uh, I, I'm just forever grateful for him because I don't think if I hadn't worked with him, I don't think I would have uh, had the perspective that I have now. Yeah, I think that's that's awesome. I was to have a coach like that that kind of plants that seed because it kind of plants it in you. Like, hey, I want to push this forward. Like, I want to exactly this to right. other athletes. That's exactly right. What What's next for you? This is this is a question I enjoy asking the guests. But like, what is kind of that next big goal for you? That next five year plan, maybe, but the next thing for you. Yeah, uh, that's a good question. I think, you know, developing just a deeper understanding of, of how, how human beings work, I think, you know, not only understanding the athletes that I'm coaching, but trying to understand myself better. Um, Just because I think there are so many different planes that we as human beings work on and and operate on and trying to find out. Um, 
I think having self-awareness allows you to, to be aware of those around you a lot better. And so that's something that I'm, I'm always pursuing is understanding myself better so that I can understand others and the people that I'm coaching, um, more deeply. And so I think, you know, I, I do get caught up in the, um, particulars of my sport and, um, and the things I'm interested in. But ultimately one of the things I try to think about a lot as a coach is if, if my sport didn't exist, because it currently doesn't, but if my sport didn't exist in five years, like would I still be able to offer some sort of value to the world? And so that's something that I, I want to make sure I'm, I'm always considering. Um, even though I'm, I'm trying to be the best football coach I can be, the reality is, you know, all of our days are numbered. And so I want to make sure that, that the things I'm doing apply to more than just football. Yeah. And that, that's something I talk about all the time is like my, my job is to lead people first and then exactly. athletes second. Oh, without a doubt. Without a doubt. When we get here, so this is the, when you're on the deathbed question, you're, you're on your deathbed. It, it, this, like you mentioned, like all of this, all this stuff is finite. All this coaching is done. Like, what do you want your legacy to be? Like, what do you want people to say? Hey, this is, this is what he meant to the world. Yeah, that's, that's a great question, man. I, I think I just want people to, um, I, I want people to have hope. I think hope is, is one of the most important things, uh, in the world. And I think, our, maybe our generation more than more than any, a lot of people lack hope and um, lack vision to see a way forward in their lives. And so, you know, I think that's that's the big thing that I want. I, I want the people that I come in contact with to leave to leave with um, an outlook on life that that good is coming and that um, that they're that life is gonna is going to be difficult without a doubt. And there's going to be a lot of pain and suffering that they're going to deal with, but but there's a reason uh, reason for all of it, and that they can. Uh, that they can continue coming back and, and continue uh, to grow through all of the the tough things that happen in life. And so I think, you know, I would hope that uh, when people come in contact with me, that they would leave those interactions more hopeful that uh, that good is coming. And this is a very, uh, probably a very similar answer then for you, but your billboard message that somebody, for somebody that's in a valley, they're kind of, they're kind of stuck in the spot. Maybe it's an injured athlete. Maybe it's somebody that wants to get to where you're at, but they're, they're not there yet. Like what is your message for them? Yeah. Well, me, I've, I've mentioned the phrase a couple of times, me and my wife, um, have kind of a life, um, a life phrase and it is, it is good as coming. Uh, and it comes from a book, um, by George McDonald. And he basically says that, that good is always coming and few have the courage and simplicity to believe it. And so, um, I, I just always encourage people when they're going through a tough spot is to just have the courage and simplicity to believe that, um, that good is coming, that there's something, something really good for them on the, on the other side of these things. Uh, whether, whether it's exactly the way they thought it would happen or not, um, it is, is, I, I don't know the answer to that, but I, I do think that, um, that there's a lot of hope in the world. Uh, if they, if they invest in the right things and, and if they uh, ultimately, if their goal is to serve other people instead of um, just having things for themselves. So I think uh, if you're living your life in service to other people, um, I, when I, whenever I talk about courage, I talk about the three levels of courage, the courage to be yourself, the courage to better yourself, and then ultimately the courage to lose yourself in love and service to other people. So um, that's, that's kind of where, where, I, where I always try and push people. That's freaking awesome. Coach, thank you very much for being on this yeah, podcast. This is awesome. Having me on. Thank you guys for listening. Keep chopping wood. Oh.